0: In Romans about the law, the law was witness to the gospel and uh, prepared us for the gospel. The law entered in to increase transgression and to show our need for the gospel of Christ. The promise, though, is not through the law; no one is justified by the law. And in context, you said, I think he's mostly thinking about the law of Moses, but the principle is applicable to law in general. We cannot be saved on a law basis by a law system because innocence by law means you have to do it perfectly and no one has. Christ did not come to bring a better law so that we could keep it and be saved. That's not the idea. And so he works in chapter 7 on the idea of being under law. The idea that we're not under the law. And the idea that for verse six fourteen, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. And so there's one more with that. Um, so uh, look at chapter seven, and let's just kind of go through this. This is really talking about yes, that's right. Uh, you've got you've got seven five describes life under the law, and that is what's elaborated in chapter 7. 7 six describes life under the, in the Spirit, and that's what's elaborated in chapter 8. That's what we're going to see, chapter 7 and 8, the contrast between what's alive under the law and what's alive under the Spirit. So it's chapter 7, verses 1 to 6.
1: For do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. The married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so then she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the movement of our body to bear fruit for death. But now, having been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter.
0: Okay. So he says, there's a basic idea, the law does not bind the dead. Death releases you from all contract obligations. So he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law, the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. And he illustrates that with marriage. And he says, basically, a married person is bound by law to their mate, as long as their mate lives. But death frees you from that marriage contract, from that marriage law. A widow is not responsible to be faithful to her deceased husband. She is released from her husband by his death, and she is free to marry another. There's no immorality in that at all. We all understand that. That death releases you from that obligation. Now, the truth is, She can't just shrug off the living husband, and she's got a living husband, and she says, but I don't want him, I want somebody else. Now, she's still under the obligation of the law to her husband, as long as he lives. She's an adulterer. If she's got a living husband, and yet she's married to somebody else, she has an obligation to one and married to the other, that's adultery. Some people need to learn that. That's not commonly taught in our culture, in our society, even among religious people. But the fact is that you can't be uh, have, uh, have a, a marriage to one person, divorce them, and marry somebody else. That's adultery. Uh, the only exception to that is if you divorce for the cause of fornication. But otherwise, it's adultery when you remarry because you still have that binding obligation to that person you were first married to. You haven't been released by their death. But the point he's making is death does release you. The believer is no more under the power of the law than the wife is under the power of her deceased husband. So look what he says in verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that you might, we might be fruit for God. So we died, the law doesn't bind the dead, so we're not still under the law. Through Christ, in his death, we died also. We shared in Christ's death, we shared in what Christ's death means. And so we're released from the law and we're joined to Christ. We are not married to the law anymore, we're married to Jesus. But that's legitimate because we died, and death does not bind, uh, uh, the law does not bind those who are dead. So when we're baptized, we're not only free from sin, we're free from the law. Now, so he's just basically teaching that we have no more obligation to the law. The verses 5 and 6 are so central. For while we were in the flesh, the Bible uses the flesh a lot, in a lot of different senses. But I think here the idea of being in the flesh, it's the idea we're dependent on ourselves, on our own strength, on our own ability. We're not, we don't have Christ living in us, we're, we're in the flesh, we're on our own. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law. Now, we'll see how that works later on in chapter 7. But he's saying the law actually incited the sinful desires. We're working on the members of our body to bear fruit to death. So under the law, when we're in the flesh... Sin kills us. Sin leads us to death. But verse 6, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that which by which we were bound so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We've been released from this losing battle to sin and death. We now are joined to Christ where we have victory. He says we serve in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. there been a lot of <laughs> debates about what that means. 2 Corinthians 3 uses a similar analogy. And here I think we need to understand the Spirit as the Holy Spirit who brings the Gospel to us. and We need to understand the letter as the law. It was the letters written on stones. He's saying that we're under Christ, not under the law. That we're under the message that's given by the Spirit, and not the message written in letters on the stone. Uh, this is not talking about the Spirit of the law and the letter of the law. <laughs> a lot of times I like to do that, but that's not what i talking about here. The letter here refers to the law, and the Spirit refers to the gospel, because the Holy Spirit brings the gospel to us. We're really in the era of the Holy Spirit, There's also a lot in the Bible about the Holy Spirit. We need to take that more seriously. We're going to try to do that when we come to Romans chapter 8. I have neglected way too long what the Bible teaches about the Spirit. And we need to give full weight to what the Scriptures say. Uh, So we'll try to work on that. But here, the Spirit is is the agent that brings the Gospel message to us. The spirit is the characteristic element of our new era. We're in the era of the spirit, not in the era of the law. And uh, we'll talk more about what that means as we go on. So basically, in Christianity, not Judaism, we are released from the law, we are released from sin and death, we serve in a new way. So verse 5, life under the law. Sinful passions aroused by the law work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Verse 6, life in the Spirit, where we're released from the law and we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. So, we have no reason as Christians to continue to serve the law. We've been released, or serve sin. We've been released from sin and the law by Jesus. Thoughts and comments on those first six verses?
1: Jason. Can you comment on verse 5 on how the
2: simple passions were aroused by the law? I'm just going to wait and do that in the next section. We will
3: talk about that. But the next section, we'll we'll deal with that more. Matt. Would you say the Gentiles were, or this applies to the Gentiles as well as being under the law? Or would you say they were under a different law?
0: I think it's applicable to Gentiles also in the sense that they were under law not under grace. They had no forgiveness. Now he's primarily focusing on the Jews clearly in this. But but the Gentiles also did not have grace. And so they were under a law system more than they were under a grace system. So all this kind of ties together. Let's go ahead and do this next section. And that will focus us on this idea of how did the law actually foster sin. That's kind of an amazing thought. Uh, 7 to 13.
4: What shall we say, then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet Sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy, and just good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me. And what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful.
0: So what Paul said in verse
4: five. Really raises some
0: questions. While we're in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were working. Remember, is the law then sin? You know, you could assume from what Paul said in verse five that the law itself is evil somehow, or that it's sinful. And and Paul says, no, man, never be. There's nothing wrong with the law per se. Uh, but he's going to show how the law ended up being a negative factor in the history of salvation. Now, what he says here is, on the contrary, I wouldn't have come to know sin except through the law. I wouldn't have known about coveting if the law hadn't said you shall not covet. The law is what told Paul what sin was, that enabled him to understand what was sinful. Um, You know, and coveting, of course, is kind of the most fundamental sin. It's wanting something more than God. So that that's a, that's a central issue. He knew that because of the law. So the law showed him what sin was. The law was good. Nothing bad about the law itself. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. What sin does is shows how perverse it really is by co-opting the good law for an evil purpose. Sin was the culprit, And sin used the law to gain an opportunity to produce sin in me. He used the law as a base of operations. It's kind of a tyrant that takes a, a positive instrument and wields it for harm. That's what sin did. Now, in some senses, and we're going to talk more about this as we keep going, but think about how we are as human beings. We're sort of attracted to the wild side of things, to the rebellious side of things. You know, when we learn that lusts are dangerous, suddenly we want to try them. You know, we don't like the idea that there's something we can't do, wonder what there is in that. That must be good. I mean, that's a really common feeling we have. You tell you tell somebody you can't, we want to. That's a part of what he's saying is this. Now think about what he says in verse uh, uh, 9. I was once alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Now think about Adam and Eve. They were alive. <coughs> the law came. Don't eat of that tree. What did Satan do? He used that law. He came to Eve and said that God said you can't give me any tree to him, a of the garden. He was like, well, you know, we can eat of the tree, but not this tree. And Satan used that law to say, wonder what he's depriving you of. He knows you're going to be wise to you be this. He doesn't want you to be wise. There's some evil, there's some sinister motive God has for not wanting you to eat of that fruit. You see that idea? He persuaded them to sin by using the law and killed them. Now I think Paul in verse 9 is really talking about himself. I think he himself was once alive apart from the law. So were you. So was I. We've got some small children in here who are alive apart from the law. They have no accountability to God's law and they're alive. But then the commandment came. You become responsible before God for your actions. And what happened? Sin sprang to life and killed you. That's what's happened to every one of us. Is that we were alive. (coughs) Apart from the law. And then sin sprang to life. Once we became accountable. And it killed us. That's the record of the human race. None of us are exempt from that. Now... I think this is a very difficult passage for a Calvinist. When was Paul alive apart from the law? Only as a child, a small child. When else would he have been alive apart from the law? Calvinism teaches that everybody's born dead. That everybody's born a guilty sinner and lost. They don't have anybody ever being alive apart from the law. But Paul said, I was a life apart from the law, and then sin sprang to life. The law came. You know, I became accountable. Sin sprang to life and killed me. So the sin did a total reversal in his life and massacred him. So he said, This commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. The life-giving command ended up killing him because sin used the law, misused the law to kill him. For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So the problem is not the law per se, but sin misusing the law. He says, "So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Commandment's good, the law is holy. It's not the law; it's sin using the law. Don't blame the sword because it fell. Your sword fell into the enemy's hands, and he used it to kill you. What well, the sword? Swords fall." Don't blame the fire extinguisher sure, if somebody grabs it and beats somebody to death. It's not the fire extinguisher's <laughs> fault. You know, there's a lot of instruments can be, that can be used for evil that are intended for good. You can use a hypodermic needle for bad purposes. But it's intended for good. Satan uses God's gifts to people and makes them into weapons of destruction. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be rather with sin, nor there might be soon to be sin, by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. (coughs) Sin's misuse of the law shows how evil sin is. I want to talk about this a bit more. How does sin use the law? Well, think of two things. These are both true, and they they, may both be implied in this. There would be no sin if there were no law. Sin is a violation of law. So if you didn't have law, period, you couldn't have sin because you wouldn't have a law So in that sense, sin uses the law inherently. But look at this. What's forbidden, as we said earlier, automatically becomes more appealing. We like to do what we're not supposed to. Proverbs chapter 9. And verse uh, 17, you have those two banquets by wisdom and foolishness. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Bread and water is luscious if you had to break the rules to get it. Augustine, in his memoirs or whatever, wrote that, I think it was the pears or peaches on his pears, on his neighbor's tree, were not as good as the pears on their own tree but he'd always climb up the name of the tree and steal the bears Because it was more fun. We like doing what we're not supposed to do. That rebellious spirit. That idea that going out of bounds is more fun. We like that. that. That's a perverse desire. But sin takes advantage of that. And it produces, it produces sin and death in us. So we really need salvation. We really need somebody to rescue us. Sin has mastered it's wielded the law, conquered us and put us down for the count and so under the law we become sinners with no hope under grace we're released from sin and we have salvation and righteousness so chapter 7 will show us the law life under the law, chapter 8 will show us life in the spirit We're gonna, we're going to continue pushing that idea through the rest of chapter 7 but I'll pause here at the end of verse 13 Comments, thoughts, questions? Is there any significance
5: (coughs) for Paul saying, actually, you shall not covet versus, you know, remember the Sabbath day or something like
0: that? Well, maybe in the sense that (coughs) coveting is almost like the most fundamental sin. It's putting something else in the place of God. And and it's almost the... uh, the the underlying reason for all sins we desire something <laughs> we desire something we steal it we desire someone we commit adultery we desire to hurt someone or we kill and so forth so I think there's a there's a sense in which coveting is almost the root of all sin. <coughs> good question. Other comments? Question. Awesome.
6: You may not have an exact answer, but maybe others do. You know, as I talk to my friends who are lost in this doctrine of Calvinism. And it, it, like I, I just struggle with this so much as we have the conversation. One, one good friend recently had a child and instantly goes to this argument of the child is wicked, terrible, horrible, sinner. I can't wait till they're saved. Like, that's the conversation I have at work. And I, I struggle with the answer because it's, it's so clear to me that the, the thing you said a little bit ago about reading the passage five times and it's finally dawning on him. This young man has been born in it himself, and he's been told that he's worthless, he's nothing, but the great God saved him. I, I just, I look for, I long for more answers to give him, other than what he just said. Of, you know, that child is not what you think. You, you weren't, and you're not saved in the state that you, you believe you are. I know that's a lot, but it's just a, it's a hard concept to... to to
0: come back. You know, things we're rooted in are hard to get rid of. And I would suggest all the standard things. Sin is not inheritable, sin is a transgression of the law. You know, the soul that sins it will die. Jesus said of of children, of such as the kingdom of God, he implied their innocence, and things like that. I will say that I think this Calvinistic doctrine that children are born to pray creates serious parenting issues. I think it does for Christians. I think there's too many Christians who've been influenced by Calvinism and that and believe their children are so much afraid. I question, and this is talked by a lot of people, but I question whether we ought to have our small children say they've sinned and, and and you know, try to convict them of sinning. They disobeyed. But I'm not sure we ought to connect that with a sin. I don't believe my three-year-old is sinned. They disobeyed. They need to obey their parents. I, I would teach them that from the Bible. But I think they're sinning only when they're accountable. And I think sometimes when you see a child as a sinner, it changes your view of them. I think we ought to see children as pure and righteous, they have their foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. It means this, but yes, well, and,
6: and I think that attitude stems from selfishness, right? We they sinned against us in our mind, but they certainly <coughs> haven't sinned against God. Right. And if, when we when we parallel that and when, and when we realize that it, it is sinning against God that is the accountable right fact that God is condemning as yes. opposed to the disobedience
0: that's wound up in that childhood. Yes, I think we can almost hurt the child's sense of well-being by bragging them as a totally depraved sinner. That is not true. That's certainly not how Jesus viewed children. Um, the first person I ever tried to teach seriously the gospel, who was baptized and fell away shortly thereafter, was a strong Missouri Synod Lutheran who inherited sin was the big issue we had. And we've worked and worked on that. And uh, it's difficult to deal with because they are so rooted in that. I think biblically, it just doesn't make sense. There's there's not a lot of biblical support for that idea. But wow, it's, it's a, it's a to- totally absorbing idea for them. Yes, Yes, John. Just, just.
5: Okay. Uh,
0: do you know what the Calvinists would say about verse 9? Like, what is their view of that that's actually talking about? I'm not sure what they would say. Somebody got an answer. I probably read it, but I, it doesn't kind of me at the moment. You know, typically, the typical thing is false teachers kind of pass over those things. Yeah. So I don't know that. I, I, you know, I've read several Calvinistic commentaries in the last year preparing for this. Almost all the better commentators are Calvinists, unfortunately. But it's just annoying because they come to some verses and they just make massacre. But I don't remember what was said on this verse. and And you know, listen, you take a commentator who's doing, you know, three verses per page, and then he goes for 20 pages on one verse. What's the deal? He's trying to work his way around it. We do the same thing sometimes. We've got to be careful about that. No, we have to just explain, 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 and maneuver and all this kind of stuff. Are we trying to avoid what the passage is really saying? That's a little worse.
1: Based <laughs> on the conversation I was having with the Calvinist a couple days ago, I think for verse 9, they would probably just say this, I don't think specifically about Adam and Eve, or they said. Okay, maybe so.
0: Adam and Eve, I think that is one explanation that's talking about Adam and Eve. I don't think it was very satisfied when he said, I was once alive apart from the life. But I do think you're right
7: now. Jake? Uh, tip, as an answer to that, uh, we re- uh, I recently was part of a class that we looked into some of the Calvinistic ideas and wh- what, how they kind of handle certain passages that clearly uh, refute their doctrine, and some of the most prominent Calvinists will come to certain passages, and this is literally their, their idea. This is what they're... Um, their cop-out is in a lot of cases with some of the passages they come to it, and, and he literally says something to this effect of it can't mean what it looks like it means because then it would it would it would be uh, it, it would be a contradiction to what we know to be true. Right. So that means it can't mean what it what it really means. Basically, yeah. they they just re, they first of all refuse that it could be uh, free will. That they first of all refuse that. So even if there's no other way to make sense of that passage, they refuse to do it. They just they'll admit, well, we don't know that. It's important for us to really
0: be aware of. when we get to where we're just blind in the face of plain meaning. You know the Bible is based on the whole idea of free will. It's and not absolute free will. There's a the limit to free will, but but that we have free choices is what all the gospel's based on. And when you just have to constantly deny what the Bible says, but do we ever do that? We have to be careful about that. When you find yourself constantly having to explain passages away, it may be we've misunderstood something. I think that's the best lesson we can get out of it because some of these guys are very passionate about their teaching, Uh, you know, so are we the guilty ones as well? That's a good question. What is Calvinism? What is Calvinism? Yeah,
5: seriously.
0: It's a whole system of teaching that says we're born in sin and God arbitrarily chooses some people to be saved. Those are the ones for Jesus, that Jesus died for. God gives them faith in the Holy Spirit to make them saved, and they can never lose their salvation. It's a it's a series of teachings that were kind of systematized by John Calvin and extended on by his followers. A lot of John Calvin's followers are way more Calvinistic than Calvin. Yeah. <laughs> it's a false doctrine. Basically. It's a false doctrine. That's my okay. You heard talking this Bible
1: study? I've heard pieces
0: of it. I'm just like, yeah. Pretty prominent, yes. I I so I can explain that I don't know that there is a great answer. I mean think about this. I mean think about the idea that a small child, obviously, has no conception of God and no sense of responsibility for their actions. So even in our civil law, if you took a three-year-old and a three-year-old pulled the trigger of a gun and killed somebody, you would not blame the three-year-old, because we understand he's not responsible for his actions. He doesn't understand the consequences of his actions. Now, at some point, we become accountable and responsible. And then we begin to sin purposely against the Lord. There's not a biblical statement as an to age. And so, I mean, I think we've got to try to reason through that. I do think we see that. And I think an analogy with the human laws is helpful. Because we understand some, some, you know, adolescents are tried as adults. Because we understand they had the ability to control their actions. They had an understanding of what they were doing. There was intent. Uh, But, but yeah, I I wish there was a clearer definition. Some of you may have something you want to say about that. You're welcome to. Yes?
8: The thing that um, helps me with that is that um, when God decided that he was going to um, have a lot of the Israelites die in the wilderness, he drew a line at about age 20. And not that that's the age of accountability or... Anything like that, but to me, it's when God kind of laid down that principle that above a certain point, He was going to hold them accountable, and those people were going to not be permitted to go forward. But at the same time, those younger people were going to be allowed to go into the promised land. He did not hold them accountable for that. decision.
6: Right.
0: Yeah, and there may be broader issues with their involvement in leadership, but yes, you're right that God made a decision and He did not blame the younger people for that decision. Yeah, good thought. To it. Yes.
2: And, uh, Ephesians 1 talks in a lot of verses about when you read and understand, I mean, that idea of understanding when you refuse the gospel, you understand what you're refusing or you're accepting it away when you read it. And so, that kind of idea we have to understand what we're doing in order to be held accountable for that. I think mean, those verses help us
0: that, sort too. And there's a difference between knowing you need to obey your parents and understanding your relationship to God and seeing it that way. But you, we, we see that in so many ways. We, we all have that intuition. When do you allow a kid to babysit? Only when you think they have a sense of responsibility and depth to understand how to be responsible and caring for someone else. Normally, we wouldn't let an eight-year-old babysit. Now, an eight-year-old can do everything for themselves, most things for themselves, but we would see they don't have the maturity To really, you know, care for a small child, you probably all of us probably would let a sixteen-year-old sit. You know, I mean, they drive. (laughs) You know, I mean, they're they're responsible. We see them as responsible. They act that way, not always. We don't always, but they have the ability to. Uh, Somewhere between sixteen, you know, we start seeing they are responsible. They're able to maturely process what they're doing. I think we all have that sense, um, but but you know in all kinds of ways. So I don't think this is foreign to us. But I don't think there's a biblical precise passage that says here's the definition. Good question. Good. You know, there's lots of things in the Bible that spiritual questions that are hard to answer and are good to discuss. So, yes. good point. I agree with that. I think that children can learn how to relate to a father through us as fathers and then can transfer that to the Lord. It makes it important for us to parent them well to where they can learn that easily. Good good discussion. Okay. Well, then how about uh, 14 to 24?
1: Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God to my mind, but with my flesh I serve the
0: law of sin. So you see Paul. Uh, you can see Paul here describing this losing battle. You know, he wants to do what's right. He has the desire to do what's right, but he doesn't do it. Sin just ends up dominating him, enslaving him. He's fighting this losing battle. He feels overwhelmed. He's in anguish, he's in despair, he struggles with sin, uh, but he's defeated by sin constantly. And so what he wants and what he does are two opposite things. And look at, look at what I'm suggesting here on this chart. The big debate in this passage is this talking about a Christian and their struggle with sin, or about somebody under the law and their struggle with sin. Now think about the passages in chapter 6 that say we died to sin we died to sin in verse 2 we died and were freed from sin in verse 7 in verse 11 we consider ourselves to be dead to sin you think about the passage that says we're freed from bondage to sin in 6.14 sin shall not be master over you in 6.18 we've been freed from sin in 6.22 we've been freed from sin and look at that in comparison with 7.14 I've been sold into bondage to sin in 723. Uh, it makes me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Look at 8-2. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets you free from the law of sin and death. You talk about the flesh so much all through chapter 7 in verse 5 that we looked at. Verse 14, I'm of the flesh. Verse 18, uh, and nothing good dwells in my flesh. Verse 25, uh, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But in chapter 8, it'll all be the Spirit. We serve the, the Spirit and not the flesh. So the overall thought is that grace frees us from the bondage of sin, grace enables us to live for God. The law does not. This is describing. The hopeless battle of the man under the law. You understand the idea? You're a sinner no matter what under the law. You can't get rid of your sin. You can't can't liberate yourself from sin. You're You're a sinner because you sin and you have nothing you can do about it. You're going to have to pay the penalty for your sins. When you feel hopeless, you lose the ability to win the battle. When you're a hopeless sinner because you're under the law, does it really matter if you change, you know, you take the guy who killed a bunch of folks and has been caught on a video and they're all kind of witnesses. Does it really matter if he commits some more crimes? I mean, if you kill some people, you're going to get the book thrown at you. Is it going to be any worse? if you steal a few things too? You know, is it really going to matter? You happen you be deader than dead. You know, so if if you're hopeless, if there's no way of redemption, there's no way of forgiveness, you're just fighting a losing battle. You never have the moral strength to overcome sin. Grace liberates you. Forgiveness gives you power and strength, and you can do what you want to do. You can do what you choose to do. And so when you stand alone before God's law, sin enters in and captures and enslave You're not even the master of your own house. You want to, but you can't do it. So you see Paul crying out in verse 24. Wretched man that I am. A desperate cry from somebody who's made a valiant struggle, but he's still in slavery to sin. He's shrieking for help. Who will set me free from the body of this death? It's just a horrible thing. Have you done that? Just felt so defiled that you can't overcome it. Let me suggest you think about that in connection with uh, your pet sin. you have a pet sin? No, oh, our pet sins are. Our pet sins are the sins that we just kind of are attached to. You can't let them go. You know, there's just kind of the sin that even when we do other things okay, this is a kind of the sin that, that we can never, uh, ever let go. So, you commit your pet sin. How do you feel? Dirty? Defiled? Disgraced? Embarrassed? Wicked, evil, loser, dead, hopeless, bound for hell. And when you feel that way, what are you going to do next? You feel so bad. You go back to your pet sin for some comfort. You're back, get go back to your pet sin and distract you. And that makes you feel worse and just feel horrible. You hate yourself. So you go back to your pet sin to try to feel better. You just, this is this vicious cycle it just keep going down, down, down because you feel so bad and it just makes you want to do worse because you just want to get away from, from how bad you feel it's the only solace you've got you can't turn to the Lord, you feel so distant from Him you feel so unworthy before Him you see that idea? now, if we can truly turn to God we repent of our sins and we get forgiven forgiveness means Total exoneration. I was talking to this guy one time. He was a member of the church where I was. He was a newcomer, and for three or four years, five years, he was just sort of crawling. He didn't do real well. He didn't do horribly, but not great. And that was then all of a sudden, he just changed. He just perked up like nobody's business and started doing way better. And I asked him, I said, "What happened?" And his explanation was this. He said, "Well, I knew that once I became a Christian, God would." cross off my sins. And so every time I sinned and I asked for forgiveness, he'd cross it off. He said, then yeah, my life was full of all these crossed off marks. I felt really bad, You know, I had all these smudges and all these crossed off places where God had to cross off my sins. And then I came to realize that no, God didn't cross them off and totally took them away. It's so like I didn't have them on my record at all. He gave him so much encouragement, so much strength to fight the battle and do better. We have to come to be forgiven and realize our total forgiveness. Because if we still feel half guilty, half defiled, half wicked, half hopeless, we have no power to fight off sin. Sometimes our problem in the battle against sin is not understanding grace. is not realizing our forgiveness. Is we feel so bad because we've messed up and we don't really gain the forgiveness we're seeking, We don't really see ourselves as forgiven, as cleansed, as made righteous, innocent before God, that it just drags us back into it. Because if you're going to be guilty and defiled anyway, what difference does it make? So wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus delivers. He can't wait to say that. He concludes chapter 7 and the rest of verse 25, but he has the outburst of of gratitude to God for liberating him, for giving him a victory over the body of this death. So that on the one hand I myself with my mind observe the law of God, but on the other hand with my flesh law of sin. (coughs) How many people have felt that? How many people sense that Yes, I try, I try to do what's right in my mind, but my body doesn't do it. So in my mind I'm serving God, but in my body I'm serving Satan. So you want to serve God, but the sinful passions led you to serve the law of sin. If this describes you, you may be trying to go it alone. Trying to make yourself good enough for God instead of receiving His grace and His forgiveness. Think of this application. You ever know somebody who just really was afraid to obey the gospel because they were afraid they couldn't live it? And so they were trying to get good enough on their own and live it well enough that then they'd be ready to obey the gospel. Well, the truth is, if you can be good on your own, you don't need the gospel. You can't do that. You will never overcome sin on your own power. You need Christ to do that. So you can't try to perfect yourself on your own before then you come to Christ. Um, so there's just a lot of practical applications. I realize not everybody agrees with this interpretation of Romans 7. I don't mind people uh, expressing the opposite view. I'll probably respond. But I, I think it's good for people to see the, see both sides as there's, there's anybody who wants to defend the opposite side. I think this is pretty clear. But I do realize that, you know, things I think are clear, other people don't. So, uh, comments, questions, thoughts? Jason. So, Paul is
8: putting himself in the place of someone who was under the law. Yes,
1: I think so. Yes. Matt. So. Uh, you said that it cannot be a Christian, but it might also be fair to say that it could be a Christian that just doesn't understand grace and is trying to be justified through something of
0: the law. Yes, it's not somebody who is actively living under grace, living by the Spirit. Some Christians do revert back to this, but they're certainly not right with God when do. Yes. Good point. Yes? yes. So I, uh, I read
5: a, an illustration that helped me with this one time. It, it was. Uh, talking about how comparing trying to live our life uh, and, and our fight against sin and like driving an airplane and with our flesh with, with the way that, that our, our mind works living by the law and driven by the flesh it's, it's like we have our autopilot set on that life and when we become a Christian we try to change and so what happens a lot of times is we just try to fight against that, and we, we turn the little you know, airplane steering wheel around in the opposite direction, and we're trying to hold hold to that path, but but what happens is the plane is, is fighting us. It's pulling us back on to, to the opposite direction, and so we, we just try to force it, and we try to change on our, on our own, use our own strength, but it, it's a constant struggle, and as soon as we let up, we, we're right back where we started, and so it's just allowing the board to are all say, to
0: where it needs to be. Yeah, it makes a lot of difference when we fight sin with the strength of the Lord and we turn to Him and we're dependent on Him, instead of trying to think, I've got to do this for myself. There's a lot of implications of that. Chapter 8 and verse 12.
7: So then, brethren, not we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the
0: flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We need to put to death the deeds of the body by the spirit, not by our own strength. The idea of turning to the Lord for strength, receiving the spirit for strength, and not thinking it's dependent on just me having the willpower, I'm going to somehow make myself do this. That doesn't work. You've seen that, right? It's not that we don't have to have a decision we don't have to allow Jesus to rule in us. We still have to present our members to Christ. But it must be independence
7: on Christ using his strength. And the Lord himself said the spirit is dwelling but the flesh is weak. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts? Sure. So, question. I, I struggle with verse 25 because it seems like he's building up to this thanks be to God through Jesus Christ that's what liberates us and then he goes back to the same idea. So how do you see that?
0: To me, it's easy, he
7: parenthetically,
0: you know, expresses his gratitude to God. When he comes to that shriek in chapter 24, he can't wait to say, thank God I've been liberated. But he still needs to summarize what he said in chapter 7, which he does, and then moves on to chapter 8. That's a real problem for the people who believe the other side. That's something they use all the time. But to me, it's not a problem to interject that. And then, then finish up chapter 7 and then go on to that chapter 8.
3: Uh, I like the
8: illustration that you used about the guy who kept on like, sitting yeah. and God just crossed him off the watched him on the record. I felt the same way when I felt kind of happy was him. It was so humbling and people back to God. but like, you know, uh, thinking like, hey, I'm still half forgiven. So realizing that like, God takes these things
0: Yes, and just making people feel worse doesn't necessarily help them do better. Okay.
8: So those under the old law that really served God faithfully—it it, it makes me more impressed by them that they
1: did that in spite of you know the deck being kind of stacked against them so to speak under the old law you know we haven't they had have the hope
8: of Christ but you know that's been fully realized uh, with us today
0: not so much then and yet they continue to serve the Lord you're right although I think we ought to add to that in the old covenant they did experience forgiveness they didn't have a real basis for understanding how God could do that but I think they overcame their sins with forgiveness. So clearly our greater understanding of that and our having the Spirit and having Christ in a better, stronger way should give us even more victory. But I think they, I think the, the true Jews were not legalistic. And they understood God to forgive, and that was their power also. Matt. I
3: also think the view of chapter 7 as being the man, or Paul giving an example of a man under the law fits the flow of Romans a little bit more accurately. Because often, in chapter 1, he talks about sin and the problem of sin, and how it applies to everybody. Then he addresses the possible complaints the Jewish people might have to say about that. Then he does that again in chapter 3, and he once again explains, we've all, we all fall short of the glory of God. Then chapter 4, he talks about it being through grace, and he does so in 5. Then he talks about, though we have grace in 6, we still need to not sin, and then, even though we're still convicted, we can't have this legalistic mindset, and
0: continue going. Yeah, I, I do think trying to see six to eight, especially as a unit, is helpful. I would go back again to six fourteen, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. His point is, grace does not promote sin; grace enables you to overcome sin. It's under the law that you're a hopeless, helpless sinner. No matter how hard you fight or how much you want to change, you can't change. I think seeing that overall picture of six to eight is really helpful. Yeah. Um,
8: so Jason gave the explanation that the reason why Paul, or what Paul's doing here, is he's taking putting himself in the place of the person who's trying to achieve righteousness to be the law. Why would
0: Paul do that versus describing it in a different method? I guess I'd ultimately say I don't know. I would say Paul had lived that. I do think before he became a Christian, he felt that, and saw that. So I, I don't know that that was totally apart from Paul's personal experience, though not right then, but previously, yes. So,
8: any thoughts as far as why Paul has been using in the past tense versus the current present tense? I think it makes
0: it more vivid in the present tense. Those, are, those would be the common things that would be said on the other side. Um, and, yeah, you know, maybe it would have been more understandable for Paul to use the third person or use the past tense, but I don't think those considerations outweigh the overall content, the overall point. It just becomes really difficult when you read chapter 6 to understand somebody who's sold into bondage to sin, He's not talking about somebody who's fighting a battle. He's talking about somebody who's lost a battle. You know, sin which dwells in me. You know, sin which dwells in me. You know, and all that is like, you know, wow. that doesn't sound like somebody who's got Christ in him. It sounds like the opposite of the man in chapter 6 and the man in chapter 8. So I think looking at the overall view helps us to see what this is talking about in context. Even if there are some things that you're like, well, why do you put it in the present tense? You know, I can give that answer. I think that's a reasonable answer. I understand why the present tense gives some people some problems, but I don't think that, that big a factor compared to the overall context and what he actually says.
7: Jake? I think sometimes we like to find certain, like, r- grammatical rules to the writers of the Bible, and really, honestly, we don't even use that. Like, a lot of times I'll speak of something in the in the past tense, but then I'll use something in the present tense, still referring to past events, but everybody knows I'm really referring to it as past tense, but I'm speaking in the present tense for, you know, many different reasons, so we can't necessarily only just bind to grammatical uh, rules and laws and, and patterns on everything that the, all the writers do, I mean. Okay, that's fair. Scott? There
2: are so many Christians I've talked to who are reluctant to talk about heaven in a confident way because they aren't sure. What does it mean when their sins are removed as far as Jesus from the West? This idea of the opposite side of what you're teaching actually adds to their lack of faith that God can forgive them.
0: And And when we don't have hope, we lose our motivation to overcome sin. So I think that's a struggle for us. There's a lot of balance in these things. But I do think that this... I've got to figure out how to make myself good enough to earn God's grace and salvation is a real problem in our life. Um, And so I think sensitivity to this, really understanding this understanding the grace and mercy and forgiveness that Jesus provides, that really strengthens us to overcome sin. I think we are afraid sometimes. If I really believe in grace, then I'll fall apart and I'll just sin all the time. And Paul's saying, no, it's the opposite. It gives you the hope and strength to overcome it. And I think it really does. I think that's the better view. Mike? Well, I just wonder, about Scott, saying
8: that it reluctant means you to speak confidently about Because we tend to live by law, even though we may deny that, we tend to be living by law. And so that it's dependent on us to be justified, and and we see ourselves in the battle that Paul is describing in verse fourteen through twenty-four, and it's, um, it's almost like we can't allow ourselves to express. Like Paul did, that feeling of liberation because it's just not right. I just need to it remain. It's right, like, almost like I'm afraid I'm going to tread over into an abusive view of race. You know what I mean? I do, I, I, think, mean, you're I think you're right. Somewhere out here on an extreme, as opposed to realizing that the right way we can understand it, the true liberation was are supposed to be there.
0: You're right. No, I agree, and that's a struggle for me as well. I see that, and I think we need to trust more the grace of God. We need to live with more confidence, and we should be able to have confidence, not some rashness, but confidence that God's grace has saved us. Clearly, Paul continued to bump in his body. He understood there were risks and danger. He wasn't trying to just say, I can just let myself go. But he did believe there was the crown laid out for him, and he was looking forward to it.
2: When he said that in Second Corinthians five about the love of Christ compelling, if we get up every day and understand today, I want to do everything I can in response to what God has done for me. Yes, Amen. That's that's our motivation. The love of Christ pushes us to do what we do, not because I want to work my way into this, but because I got no choice but live for God. Yeah, Amen.
6: Good thought. Awesome. Do you think at times we get scared of grace because others yes. use it? in a it way flippant I'm grateful to know that word is later uh, <laughs> and, and so therefore we, we justify not being under grace in our minds because others are using it improperly and and maybe that's our own judgment that others are using it improperly because maybe some of those people that are, that are there that are doing it in a different way than, than the brethren, brethren that are here are doing it we begin a little bit scurried
0: by the word grace, and we freak out. I mean, that's what you've got here: is the danger of the abuse, using that danger as an excuse not to believe in grace. Lots of Bible teachings are abused, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't teach them. We just teach them and understand them correctly. Yeah. Um,
8: so, so anytime a Christian could read this text and maybe relate to it that would be an indication of them approaching their faith or their, you know, their desire to be right before God in, 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 in an unhealthy way, would you say that?
0: Yes, I mean, when we think of ourselves as on our own and when we see sin as dwelling in us and defeating us, yes. We have a struggle with sin. Galatians 5, indicates that, there is a battle, but it's not losing us. Yes, we is the big issue. is humbling in a way to receive God's grace as opposed to being able to make ourselves righteous on our own. I agree.
8: So I Hebrews ten nineteen 19 helps me to try to find that balance. Uh, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And so being able to see that I can go boldly or with confidence before God He's going to express that grace, not because of me, but
0: because of Jesus' blood. Mm-hmm. Yes, amen. Good, good thoughts. All those are good thoughts, good comments, good discussion, good to be able to talk through this. we got more challenging stuff ahead, but we need some lunch to uh, perhaps, uh, I don't know if we needed that much. It'll help us it to sustain uh, ourselves. Also give us a chat to visit together. we have a prayer here in a second, but um, the white chicken,
3: chili, is